You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me not this week is Paul Doroshenko, but even better than Paul <laughs> is A.K. Puri, who is one of the lawyers in our office, and A.K. is here to talk about all sorts of exciting things to do with taxis and rideshare and the legal implications surrounding those. So welcome to the podcast. Hey, Kyla. Yes, nice to be here. This is like your second appearance on the podcast, right? This March, the first appearance. Really? On the oh, I thought you were on with Paul one week when I was like away. No, actually, somebody else. Somebody else. Oh, yeah. You got you got like shafted. Yes. Oh, wow. Well, I'm sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> um, so I wanted to have you on here because we we see a lot more regulation of Uber now that they've opened it up to Victoria and the Okanagan, and we're going to see a lot more people getting their licenses to drive for Uber, um, drive for Lyft. And of course, we always have had and will continue to have a taxi industry in British Columbia. And I think people don't realize how that's regulated. Absolutely, yes. Um, actually, the commercial passenger vehicle program regulates uh, both the ride-sharing services such as Uber or Lyft mm-hmm. and the taxi companies, um, everybody who's licensed in British Columbia, formerly known as the passenger transportation branch. And they have actually two branches, Central Transportation Branch and the board. Okay. Now they have combined it into one, Commercial Vehicle, Commercial Passenger Vehicle Program. <laughs> um, but essentially, um, in terms of Uber and Lyft, uh, what we see most is when they get a certain number of tickets mm-hmm. in a certain period of time, they cannot be issued a record check certificate. Okay. They must have that certificate. And does that come from the commercial... Vehicle program. Okay. It's not done through Uber. Uh, it is actually issued by Uber. Okay. But the legislation is through the commercial passenger way. Okay. So Uber gets their driving record and then issues the certificate. Absolutely. Okay. Every 12 months, they're supposed to get their driving record and the police record check. Okay. If they have any prescribed matters mm-hmm. on those records, uh, they can actually take their licenses away. The the licenses to operate the Uber or the Lyft. Lyft, that's right. correct. Okay, yes. not not their actual driver's license. <laughs> so what what are prescribed matters then? There are a number of prescribed matters, but to put it simply, if you get four tickets or more, or if you get any driving prohibitions, this could be immediate roadside driving prohibition, administrative driving prohibitions, could be driving prohibition caused by too many points on your driver's license. You're basically done. Okay. And in terms of your criminal record. Any criminal record whatsoever, pending charge, or when you, that you've been convicted in in the last 10 years. Wow. So even if it's like a mischief charge because you smashed your ex's mirror. Absolutely. Wow. Even if it is a peace bond. A peace bond? Absolutely. Yes. Really? That will keep you from working for Uber or Lyft? Yes. And is that because of, that? Is that by regulation? These are prescribed by regulation? They are the prescribed matters. Yes. So what what do you recommend people do then if they're working for Uber or Lyft and they start running into trouble with the law. Yeah, well, that's where I come in. Because <laughs> um, you only have 30 days after denial from the Uber or Lyft or any taxi company to apply for a review. 
okay. of that record. You apply for a review within 30 days. It's called a record check review application. Mm-hmm. And you show them why the matter is unrelated to your work as a driver of a single tractor vehicle. So even if you get a mischief charge for breaking a window of your ex, you have to show how that is unrelated to you driving for Uber. Right. So like you would also, I guess, have to address things like your risk of causing a safety concern to a passenger or to somebody who's vulnerable in your vehicle based on sort of a violent outburst. Well, yes. And that is the whole point of this legislation coming into force is to save the passengers <laughs> so that that person doesn't get too angry at the passengers and breaks another window or something. So, OK, but what protects the drivers then? Is there anything in this legislation that protects drivers? Um, no. No. OK. To keep it so, <laughs> so no. They, these legislations are not to protect the driver, but instead the passenger. OK. Um, and every 12 months, they have to perform these checks. Wow. So in that 12-month period, if you get any other prescribed record on your um, driving record or a prescribed matter on your driving record or your criminal record, you're basically done. So when you said four tickets, are they looking at the last 12 months or are they looking at four tickets in the entire time you've had a license? So four tickets in the last two years. Okay. Wow. And driving prohibitions in the last three years. Okay. Except IRPs. Except IRPs. Except IRPs. IRPs, they look at in the last 10 years. Really? Wow. They can even, they take, they take into consideration the RPs in the last three years. But if you have an RP within the last 10 years, they uh, they can basically deny you a record okay. certificate. So tell me about these reviews that you apply for. You're, you get denied and you have to apply within 30 days. What does a review look like? So it's a review application that we submit. It's a prescribed form review application by the Commercial Passenger Vehicle Program. Um and that review, you have to basically state how it's unrelated to your work. So everything is relevant. The steps you have taken to address any alcohol concerns that you might have, steps you've taken in terms of your employment, if you're working currently, any character references that you might have, and any complaints that were made in the course of your employment with Uber, Lyft, or any taxi company. Okay. Uh, we have had cases where complaints were made, non-criminal, not related to a driving record, but complaints as to the conduct of the driver. And they right. also denied record checks. So like that one time I had that Uber driver who was loudly chewing gum with his mouth open. If I had complained about that, he could get denied a record check. Uh, <laughs> he could. And then he should apply within three yeah. days. <laughs> I feel like that one wouldn't really hold up. <laughs> I was annoyed. <laughs> um, okay. So and then the review process, is it a written review? Is it in court? Where does it take place? It is a written review. And uh, it's uh, sent out to the Commercial Passenger Vehicle Program again. Okay. And they do not have um, a legislation that states that they have to send out a decision in a certain time. Right. So they can take as long as they want, even six to nine months in some cases. Wow. So you're unemployed for that full period. For that whole period. Can you get, while the um, review is pending, can you get like a, a transitional clearance? Absolutely not. No. Okay. So the burden really is on you to prove that you aren't a danger and you are deemed to be a danger until it's decided that you're not. Basically. So you have two options. You can either file for that review application within 30 days again, mm-hmm. or you can wait 10 years before you drive again. 10 years? 10 years okay. in some cases, yes. Wow. Or well, that's not really an option then. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, there have been cases where um, a person had a peace bond on their prescribed record check, mm-hmm. and that was on their federal record, and we were able to get a decision within two days. Okay. And they were back on the road. Wow, good for them. But that is really rare. Right. And like everything with government, I'm assuming that there's some sort of application fee that the government charges you to 
file this thing? Well, actually not in this case. Wow. I think they showed some pity on these drivers. They're out of work for some, such a long period of time that they, you don't have to pay any application fees. Yeah. Uh, but your submission should be strong enough. Right. It should address more than, and just to mirror unrelated to the passive, your work as a um, driver of passenger activity, you have to touch on multiple other things, like a stated character references, steps you have taken, if you're employed or not now, um, your income, your expenses, everything comes into consideration. When you talk about getting four tickets in a two-year time period, does that mean like any tickets, including tickets that don't have points? Well, like if you got a seat, four seatbelt tickets. Well, likely not, <laughs> but any tickets that have points. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you can get you can get a bunch of like crappy tickets that have no points, but as long as you get those, you should be okay. You should. I guess it would probably also depend on if you had a pattern. If you had fifteen no seatbelt tickets, they might say, "Okay, you're not following the." Rules. So it's at the discretion, right? Okay. Um, in some of the cases, for example, if you get a twelve-hour RP mm-hmm. or a suspension, uh, you would still be okay to drive for Uber. Really, and you'd still be okay to drive for Lyft. Okay. But some taxi companies might deny you. And so how does it work with the taxi companies? Because we've talked a little bit about Uber and Lyft. Right. Do taxi companies also have to get this clearance certificate? Absolutely. It's the same process for the taxi companies. Okay. They have to do a record check every 12 months and issue that certificate. A certificate must be displayed by the taxi drivers and their taxis. Oh, interesting. While driving. I gotta look and, for that. <laughs> yeah. And if they don't have that, they cannot operate it. And there are su- surprise checks by the then passenger transportation branch. Mm-hmm. Um and they can happen at any time when you're on the road, while you've parked in the um, in the lot of the taxi company, anywhere. And they could have that sur- those surprise checks. And if they found out that you have a prescribed matter on your record, they can deny you right there and then. Okay. And the review process, I assume, same process for taxi drivers? Same process for taxi drivers. Starts within, um, you have only 30 days, you have to file that application. It's a very strict deadline. If you miss those 30 days, you basically you have no other option. Wow. All right. And what if you lose that application, then what? Uh, judicial review. Judicial review. That is the only option. All right. And if you lose the application and you don't want to go through judicial review, how long before you can apply again? You have to wait out that period. That 10 years? That 10 years. Okay. So if you, if you do your your application mm-hmm. and you lose, you're, you're out for 10 years. Is it 10 years from the date you lose or 10 years from the date of the denial? 10 years from the date you lose it. Oh, wow. So it actually could extend your time even a year because of how long they take. They take, yes. Okay. Um, is what would you recommend to people who are sort of worried about their their taxi or their um, rideshare permit clearances mm-hmm. being granted? What would you recommend they do before getting the clearance? Well, if you get a ticket disputed, that's the number one thing. Yeah, <laughs> and I recommend anybody if you get an RP disputed right away. At least at that point, you have an argument to make that you did dispute it. Yeah. And you stand your ground. And they have to take that into consideration. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. They have to take into consideration any defenses that you might have. Okay. So if you lose your dispute, can you still say, well, I argued these defenses and they weren't accepted? You but... absolutely can. Okay. You have to, again, show how it is unrelated to your work. Right. And the circumstances take into effect. Right. So the circumstances of the offense. Okay. About what actually happened. If you think that you were given any emergency towards information wrongfully, you have to explain how you were given that. Okay. So if you work as a, a commercial uh, vehicle transport driver of any kind, you basically need to dispute your IRP. Right away. Right away. Okay. Um, and do you recommend people have a lawyer to deal with these applications or are they something that people can do on their own? 
Well, I've had people deal with these on their own, and then they come to us and file for judicial abuse. So absolutely, I have no idea the things. Right. It's better because we know what to send in. Right. And what points to touch on. Uh, we have had the benefit of looking at multiple decisions. Yep. And we know uh, how the commercial passenger vehicle program takes. Okay. Well, people can reach AK if they need to get in touch with him about their uh, clearance checks being denied at our office. Thanks, AK. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you, AK, for that really enlightening discussion uh, related to what people can do who are rideshare drivers or taxi drivers if they end up with convictions on their driving record and how the formerly Passenger Transportation Board uh, process works. And now we're joined by my co-host, who did decide to make an appearance after all, Paul Dorshenko. Hey, Kyla, glad to talk to you. Yeah, you you went on vacation and thought that you'd get out of the podcast, but uh, not going to happen. You know what? I'm always happy to talk to you. And I'm sitting beside the Fraser River. There's no mosquitoes, which is a shock. And it's quiet and lovely and not too warm. So I'm uh, happy to uh, be podcasting from this current location, I can tell you. Great. Um, So I wanted to talk to you about a really interesting case that came out of Yukon. It's the case of Valancourt, um, and it's it's Territorial Judge Cousins, who is the chief judge um, of the Yukon Territorial Court. I have been uh, on a never-ending case with him. Um, yes. <laughs> but he's a pretty prolific, like, legal writer and decision-maker, especially in impaired driving cases. And in the Valancourt case, there was an argument that was brought before him about what happens when a person wants to speak to their counsel of choice, they're waiting for counsel to return a phone call, and there's no really clear indication when counsel's going to call back or if counsel is going to call back, and what the police are supposed to do in that situation. Yeah, they're almost stymied these days. Um, It's really, uh, you know, they're not we'll see what they had to do, but it's a, it's a perplexing problem for them. There's no doubt. Well, and the decision that we're going to go through actually makes it perhaps less perplexing for the police and a lot easier for them uh, to deal with these issues when they arise. So the situation in that case was um, Mr. Valancourt uh, was told that he had the right to counsel of choice. He asked for a specific lawyer the officer called the lawyer's phone number and it said that the lawyer was away, like off, um, wouldn't be returning calls for a period. So he went to um, Mr. Valancourt and said, look, like your lawyer's away. We can wait and see if they do return the call considering you're in custody. Um, But, you know, at some point, like you're going to have to either talk to legal aid or talk to somebody else um, or we're going to provide breath samples. And eventually... Um, time passed. Uh, he did not uh, elect to speak to anybody else. He did not elect to speak to legal aid. The lawyer never called back. And the officer said, enough time has, has gone on. It's time to move this along. Let's get the breath samples done. And so the question was whether or not taking those breath samples is a uh, uh, was a violation of his, his charter rights in the circumstances. Yeah. And the court says, uh, very interesting, um, a court says at paragraph uh, 87, 
The Section 10b Charter Right to Counsel is not intended to be a game of strategy, like test, or some form of dance between the police, the detainee, legal counsel, and the law. It is a substantive right that everyone involved in the process should do their best to ensure is provided clearly and with certainty. And I find those comments very interesting, as you'll see when we get to a later portion of the decision, because I think that given that commentary, there may be an obligation that has essentially arisen on defense counsel to essentially provide information in their voicemails or after hours lines about how to reach them or whether they can be reached or how long it will take them to return a call when somebody is in custody. Oh, interesting. Yes. Very interesting. So after considering whether or not um, Mr. Uh, Valencourt was uh, sufficiently diligent and whether the police were sufficiently diligent, the court sets out at paragraph 90 of the judgment, five points that is essentially an instruction guide for what, in Judge Cousin's opinion, should happen in these situations where they indicate they want a, a, a particular lawyer, they're waiting for that lawyer to return a call, and what the officer should do to not breach Section 10B, but also not make it impossible to get breath samples. So, yes. So what is it? Here's the list. Num number one. Advise the detainee that, in the officer's opinion, time is running out and indicate how much longer the officer is prepared to wait before the officer intends to proceed with obtaining breath samples. Well, that's a problem. That's right? not great. Well, I'm yeah. prepared to wait five minutes for your lawyer to call back, but... Yeah, you're not allowed to just set an arbitrary limit. I'm sorry, Judge Cousins, that's not... And, and the way the police behave, you know, they can set a two-minute limit, a one-minute limit. They might, you know, who knows what the officer, you get some officers who are not people you'd ever want to run into, and then there's other officers who are, you know, great people who will do their best to try and operate in the spirit of the law. Now, what but he says it, yeah. in the rest of the judgment, though, I think colors this, because yeah. he refers to the officer needing to wait a reasonable period. Um, and he does ultimately say that what a reasonable period is going to depend on the facts of the case. So if in some cases, you know, five minutes might be a reasonable period. In some cases, I mean, I can't imagine a case where five minutes would be a reasonable period, but maybe 30. You know, if, if voicemail said uh, your, your call will be returned within 30 minutes, otherwise I'm not available or whatever, then, you know, perhaps. Uh, that could be considered a reasonable period. But um, that's a separate analysis, whether or not the period that the officers decided to wait is reasonable. The court then says, number two, advise the detainee prior to the end of the reasonable period of time that the police officers determined the detainee is entitled to wait to consult with counsel of choice, the option of attempting to contact another lawyer including the immediate availability of legal aid duty counsel. Paul, what's the problem with point number two there? You're just pushing people to duty counsel. That's no. the whole thing. No, that's, what? that's not what I see. This is not workable because duty counsel is almost never immediately available. That's oh, that's the other thing, too, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That you, you phone duty counsel, you leave a message, too. Yeah, you wait for a call back. So, like, what what is your option? Wait, how long do we wait for duty counsel to phone back? 
And then does this impose an obligation, a greater obligation on the state to make enough duty counsel available? Um, uh, uh, enough duty counsel available to um, give somebody the the option of uh, oh, getting an immediate lawyer? Like, is that the intention of this? Um, maybe it's the case in Yukon that legal aid duty counsel is immediately available. Doubt it. I also doubt it from files that I've read, but you know, this is this is what the judge thinks. Uh, then point number three, the court says, uh, is if the detainee indicates agreement to choose another lawyer instead of their initially chosen counsel of choice, including legal aid duty counsel, then first remind the detainee of the police obligation to provide them a reasonable amount of time to contact counsel and of the obligation to hold off on obtaining breast levels until that reasonable opportunity has been provided. This situation arises when the detainee is still within the window where it would be appropriate to wait longer to see if counsel of choice will call back. So now we see another um, element added to this reasonableness inquiry, which is the appropriateness of waiting to call back. Yeah. And then point four in those situations where, in the police officer's opinion, the detainee has exhausted the window of time where it would be appropriate to wait to see if counsel of choice will call back, the detainee should be advised of this, told that the officer intends to proceed. The detainee should then be offered the opportunity to speak immediately to available duty counsel. The opportunity to contact other counsel should not be extended unless that counsel is immediately available as this would continue the cycle of waiting for a lawyer call back. Ooh, hold on. How do you know if that other lawyer is going to be immediately available? How do police know that? You know, um, this this is, uh, I, I mean, I want to make general comments at the end because I'm, I'm concerned. I understand the, the attention here, but I, he addresses, I'm the same problems you are. He addresses your concern about steering someone to legal aid in this point and says, in my opinion... Once the officer has uh, decided to move forward to obtain breath samples, um, deciding to provide them an opportunity to contact legal aid, uh, immediately available legal aid duty counsel is not steering them to counsel. It is giving the detainee a likely last ditch chance to speak to counsel. This is preferable than the detainee not speaking to counsel at all. Of course, the decision by the officer to provide a detainee a deadline per se will, of course, still need to have been a reasonable decision in the circumstances something that, if challenged, a judge will consider and address. And number five, and last point, if the police have provided the detainee with clear information as to the timeline um, and have provided one last opportunity to speak to immediately available legal aid duty counsel and the detainee has declined to do so, then the police officer can proceed with the process of obtaining breath samples. If required to do so, the police officer can provide testimony and evidence in court as to the basis for their decision to proceed in this matter without the detainee speaking to counsel beforehand. Yeah. This is a problem. I know. He um, fairly simple procedure, but it really doesn't seem that simple. It's not simple at all. Um, the, uh, it, it <laughs> I mean, I can understand that, that this was not contemplated when the charter was written. Um, there wasn't voicemail then. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see this as workable at all. I see this as an attempt to 
resolve something that has developed into a, a problem that is, as I say, stymieing the police uh, in some respects, but also, you know, not facilitating the 10B right of counsel of choice. Yeah. And now we've got a new test that sets up steps that, if rigidly followed, are not going to permit a person basically to have counsel of choice. Yeah, this is not workable. Yeah, I don't think it's workable. And I think it's aspirational to think that, first of all, there's immediately available duty counsel. Um, and secondly, that even if there is immediately available legal aid duty counsel or the ability to find a legal, immediately available other lawyer, the police are going to know who to call. Like if they call our office, we're usually immediately available after hours. But but how do you know? How do you know the difference between those lawyers and the other lawyers? Well, there is a problem, as we know. Um, you know, many lawyers just don't answer the phone after hours. And then when the time comes for the hearing or the time comes for the trial that, you know, the person's alleging a 10B right to counsel of choice breach um, because the police didn't wait and put them directly onto legal aid. Right. So that's the, the problem he's trying to avoid. And I get it when he points out that it's people are gaming it. You know, we answer our phone because we think that it's actually important to not play that game and to comfort our clients and advise them at the time, but not everybody agrees with that. And some people think it's strategically wrong. And so if this is an attempt to get around that, you know, people who are viewing it as a strategy, and I, I'm not saying that that's, you know, it, 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 it's something people do. And I'm not saying that it's maybe we're, you know, giving something up by answering the phone for our clients, but yeah, this is, uh, this is just basically obstructing a person's right to counsel in the end. Certainly not in the spirit of, of, uh, Bartle and Prosper. Yeah, definitely not. Um, so yeah, I, I am concerned about it. I think it's unworkable as well. I think that it is also going to be really confusing for police. Like it is, he says it's relatively simple. I don't think that it's a relatively simple procedure for police to follow. I think it is a complex procedure. Um, I think it has too many steps of like, requiring the police to make determinations that are outside the scope of their available knowledge. I think it may arguably be workable in a small community like the Yukon, where there are not that many lawyers and not that many, you know, of the lawyers that exist are even people who practice in criminal defense. But counsel of choice is broader than just speaking to a criminal defense lawyer. If you want to get your advice when you're in custody from a real estate lawyer, you're entitled to do that, usually to your detriment. Yeah. And, you know, if you get off the phone with legal aid and you come to the conclusion that you're not satisfied with that right to counsel, you can say, look, I want to talk to my lawyer, even if it is a real estate lawyer. And how they're going to have a separate, different procedure in Yukon. Um you know, when the charter applies to the country and it's a criminal investigation that applies to the country, I don't know. I mean, I understand, again, like maybe this is a, a good basis for the beginning of a discussion about this, but I don't see, Yeah, I don't see this being adopted. And I don't see in, in a place like Yukon where police officers get rotated up for two years or whatever. I mean, there's some who stay there for a long time, but you're going to have a bunch of police officers 
trained with something different. I mean, is there a memo going up on their wall this week to say, this is what you have to do now? I doubt it. I, I definitely doubt it. Um, so we'll see. Um, the uh, It's an interesting approach and it will produce interesting results and it may complicate the law even further in Yukon. So we'll see where it, uh, where it goes. Uh, yep. Kyla, I've got to check out. So you're going to have to finish the podcast without me. Oh, what about the ridiculous driver of the week? A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. Let's get on it very quick. I've got got about two minutes. Yeah, it's time for the ridiculous driver of the week. Okay, it's a good one this week. On Highway 7, coming back from Toronto, uh, somebody is driving, I don't know, maybe a truck SUV. I, I can't actually tell. Oh, you know what? It's a, it looks like an SUV with a trailer uh, yeah. or what, something put into the trailer it's that, that has bikes or a motorcycle on it. And then it's covered with a tarp. And you cannot see the taillights, the license plate. Um anything on the back of the vehicle and there's no way the person could see out of the back but you can't see the taillights they're completely obscured completely blocked by a black tarp and the license plate completely blocked now of course we recently had this discussion in bc about the uh, person who had the bike rack that uh, obstructed the license plate this is the complete obstruction of the license plate you can't see a thing yeah you can it, and not just that but i i'm really concerned about like what's under that tarp and whether that's a secure load yeah i don't know i mean maybe it uh I, i'm looking i'm scan i'm closing in on the photo here but i'm looking at the photo and it looks like it's probably bicycles but completely tarped over with a black tarp and blocking the entire the only thing you can see is the bottom running lights that are mounted in the bumper I suppose if it was nighttime, you might be able to see the back of the car for that, but you can't see brake lights or signal lights. Wow. Yep. Yep. So it's don't ridiculous. do that. Don't do that. Secure your load properly. Make sure that all your lights are visible. Make sure your license plate is visible. Uh, you can get a lot of tickets if you engage in this type of driving behavior. So don't do it. Don't do it. All right. Okay. Nice Thank to talk to you, Kyla. Talk to you later. Yes. Thank you to Paul and to AK for appearing on the podcast this week. If you need to get in touch with us related to a driving law issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.